It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Monday, October 2nd. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, as state lawmakers begin to plan their budgets for the next year, the public employee retirement system is asking for more funding. Then we visit a Latin festival in Jackson where folks celebrate Hispanic Heritage Month. Plus, thousands of Mississippians on a path to regain their voting rights are facing another potential setback. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. The Public Employees Retirement System of Mississippi is operating with a roughly $20 billion deficit. That's between the money they're spending and incoming contributions. To compensate for the loss in revenue, the agency board of directors devised a plan to increase employer contribution rates. During a meeting of the Joint Legislative Budget Committee, PERS Executive Director Ray Higgins shared his ideas with lawmakers. He says the deficit is called their unfunded liability and has been steadily growing for decades. Not uncommon for a pension pension fund to have an unfunded liability, especially one that is mature or maturing like PERS, but it is something to monitor and and manage with and through. But I'd like to talk a little bit about how we got to the 20B. One, we are an accumulation of everything that's happened since we were created roughly 70 years ago. Every law change, every benefit increase, every assumption change, every major board decision, every economic expansion, every recession, it's an accumulation of that. But I'm going to focus on the last quarter century. And uh, so if we go back to 1998, mainly because that is uh, when our funded ratio was at its highest or one of its highest levels. Uh, In no particular order, starting about that time frame, there were some additional benefits funded in the law in the late 90s and early 2000s without additional funding at the time. Uh, Now, you make the case that the cost has been baked into the rate since that time, and that's true, and that's part of the reason that they've, they've gone up and may continue to go up but no additional funding at the time. And then in the two subsequent decades after that, you had a little bit of what I'll call a perfect administrative storm creating some challenges because after the benefits were increased, we had for the next 10 or 20 years, we've had a declining active to retiree ratio. And by that, I mean fewer actives coming in and paying into the system and more retirees coming on and retiring to draw off of the system and retirees living long. And that's not a bad thing, but it has a cost. Uh, we also, in those two decades that followed, we had several economic downturns. 
And then the last area I'll highlight is just a more conservative approach toward public pensions and the public pension community. To recap, on one hand, again, it may not cover every reason, but the additional benefits placed into law without funding at the time, declining active retiree ratio, several economic downturns, including the Great Recession, and then a more conservative approach to public pensions. And that has all led to the $20 billion, and I know that that is of interest and concern and, and maybe sometimes frustrating, but it's just taken decades to build up, and it won't go away anytime soon. We have to work together to come up with solutions and ideas to, to manage with and through that. Higgins presented several ideas for how the agency can reduce their deficit. But the more recent effort, the more uh, renewed focus, I guess you could say, started last December when the employer contribution rate was raised. Also in that meeting, the board passed a motion directing staff to develop a new Tier 5 and other options for consideration. And, of course, that was followed by the interest and the request from the legislature during session. So we've been working on that since that time in February. And on those, just to recap those, one was voting to phase in the employer contribution rate increase. Uh, the board voted to phase in that increase at 2% each year, starting next July, 2% each year until it reaches the amount recommended by the actuary and approved by the board. Uh, and that would mean that next year the rate would only increase from 174 to 19.4%. Another action was to adopt the assumptions recommended by the actuary after our last experience study. Uh, we do that every two years on a rolling four-year basis, and those were adopted. And that included lowering the assumption, the assumed rate of return from 7.55 down to 7% uh, based on the recommendation of the actuary, me and others. The board voted to adopt that. Uh, and it's important to have good assumptions And because if, if you don't, uh, then you're inadvertently understating the liabilities uh, and the funding to the plan. Uh, so that that is one. We also voted, I believe, uh, in, in my opinion, I think for all intents and purposes, the board has determined their position on, or their, their direction on what we'll recommend for a new Tier 5. And by Tier 5, I'm talking about a new benefit structure for future employees. You may remember that we have different tiers and PERS depending upon when you were hired. And so when I say Tier 5, I'm talking about that possible different benefit for future employees. And it, it'll be recommended as a, a reduced defined benefit, very similar to current PERS, current to Tier 4, except it would have four-year vesting and no guaranteed COLA. Instead of a guaranteed COLA, it'd be the possibility of a COLA tied to CPI, capped at 3%, and then also based on funding availability at the time. Higgins presented several ideas, and those were what he suggested. He says the board is also preparing a request for funding from the legislature to cover losses. Republican leaders with the Joint Legislative Budget Committee questioned the decisions being made by the board. House Speaker Pro Tem Republican Jason White of West asked Higgins if the board had considered the cost being placed on municipalities. Uh, one of the things we want to emphasize this session, too, is consideration of any uh, initiatives, other laws or whatnot that do anything to reduce the number of members in PERS or to incentivize reducing the number of PERS. All of those uh, law changes are initiatives. You know, and we understand and respect the fact they're for a reason and they're good points. They may be good policy and they're good initiatives. I'm not questioning that at all. But anything that is decreasing the number of folks paying into PERS does have an impact, and we want to make sure we highlight that. Um, Ray, let me stop right there. You do understand what we've heard from mayors and, and supervisors is raising it 10 points will have that exact effect. They will lay people off that won't be in the system. So y'all voted on a on a plan that will do exactly that, according to these policymakers throughout the state. So 
there's a disconnect in here somewhere about employees and folks on the plan are off because they're not going to raise their local taxes. They're just, what they're telling us is they're just going to lay people off and reduce services. So that probably needs to enter back into y'all's conversation. After continued discussion on the proposals, White says the rate increases proposed aren't feasible. Y'all's solutions seem to be just raise the just raise the amount of money and you really don't care where it comes from or your answer to the speaker is that's not our job. But unfortunately for us, that is our job to figure out where the money comes from. And it's not always just more money for us as taxpayers have finally said last spring, enough is enough. And that's what led y'all to hold off on your, that wasn't a phase. And I think it was just a five point straight up increase that would have happened by now. It's what your board originally voted on. Correct. That's right. And, and I do appreciate your willingness to work with us. But we should acknowledge that's only the result of a potential bill coming that was going to change it, you know, that led us to where we are today. So I hope as we move forward, your board will analyze all aspects of the system and help us come up with a comprehensive, um, because I think there's been a commitment at least, you know, around the around the coffee pot of law, the lawmakers saying we want to fix this long term and we want your board to be part of the solution and not just. Hey, the answer is just raise the raise the employer contribution. That can't be the answer. Just so I'm just telling you, I think we've all kind of decided that's not going to be the answer in and of itself. And so with that, you know, when you go back and say, what are those folks saying over there? I, for my part, and again, I'm like Mr. Lamar said, I don't speak for this group here, but for myself, I would say it's not going to be. We're not just going to increase it five to ten points and hope we get better. Maybe. Maybe that's a better way for me to say it. Because, and if y'all are unwilling to make some tough decisions and we have to make them, then maybe we'll just make them all is, is the point that I want to make. Is, is we're not going to, if we want to hold hands, let's hold hands and fix it. It's not, we'll hold hands on the good stuff and we'll let y'all do the bad stuff. Um, I think I, I, I want to convey that for, for what that's worth as we move forward into the legislative session. The next meeting of the Joint Legislative Budget Committee is November 15th. Coming up, history and culture take center stage during Hispanic Heritage Month. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, host of the original Southern Remedy, the show where I answer your medical questions. Subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy on any podcasting app. Why listen to Right on Mississippi? I got on the bus and I said, well, I'm going to straighten him out. And I went to the back of the bus and I said, Charlie, don't you touch my... I didn't even get sister out. My face began to beat his knuckles up very badly. (laughs) Right on Mississippi, a podcast. Download now at mpbonline.org from the Mississippi Book Festival and MPB. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Latin history and culture is taking center stage across the country for Hispanic Heritage Month. While the observance starts with one country's Independence Day, MPB's Lacey Alexander takes us to a celebration in Jackson where various cultures and countries are remembered and honored. A crowd of people dance, eat, and laugh under bright lights and loud Latin music at the Mississippi Agriculture and Forestry Museum in Jackson. 
Flags from several different Central and South American countries adorn the walls, and various conversations in Spanish can be heard around the room. This is the annual Latin Fest, where those who identify as Hispanic or Latino join together to celebrate and share their culture. Attendees dance and cheer as Manuel Gonzalez plays bongos on stage. He's a Puerto Rican native who goes by the nickname Cujo and says his band and its music, much like the festival crowd, represents a broad array of Latin communities. Latin music is just not salsa, it's not cumbia, it's not ranchera, it's not, it's not just reggaeton, it's a lot of things. And with every beat that you go, even if you don't know how to dance, you'll be a... You know, don't worry about making yourself a fool because I, I had two left feet in high school. <laughs> Cujo and his band are one of several performers at the event, which takes place during Hispanic Heritage Month. The observance starts in the middle of September and ends in the middle of October. As you grow older and as you move to different countries and stuff, then you, you want to be able to celebrate the things that kind of make you similar to other people. That's Virgilio Guardado, called V by his friends. He's from Honduras originally, but is now a Jackson resident and currently works as the communications director for the Latin American Business Association. He says celebrating the Latin community is just as much about recognizing their uniqueness as it is their similarities. Different people arrive to this country from different backgrounds and different experiences and different ways. Um, for me, I, I arrived because of education, so I invested in this country's education, and that got me here, and that allowed me to apply to certain visas. But not everything, no, not everybody is allowed to do it the same way I did it. The American Immigration Council estimates that 2% of Mississippi residents are immigrants, while another 2% are native-born U.S. citizens with at least one immigrant parent. You have to look for new frontiers, and that's why you know you have people migrating. But as, as a human species, we've always migrated. So, you know, we kind of move around. We're nomads. We come here to support and to build the United States. That's Leo Roa, a contractor who moved to Jackson from Costa Rica in 2003. He says his community contributes to Mississippi through values like hard work. The Latin culture is very important because I'll tell you the truth. You're never going to see a roofer, American roofer, on the top. You're going to see a Latin, a Hispanic people on the roof, chain the shingles. There's hard work. The American Immigration Council also found that roughly 3% of employees in Mississippi's labor force are immigrants, and over 20,000 undocumented immigrants live in the state. Four years ago, 680 undocumented immigrants were detained by ICE in workplace raids conducted at chicken plants across central Mississippi. Immigrants have been detained by officers in Pearl as recent as spring of this year. The Elmore and Peterson Law Firm in Jackson specializes in immigration law and civil law for Latin Americans and has represented individuals and families affected by those raids. Carla Elmore works there as a paralegal and Spanish interpreter. I want the Mississippi knows that we are here to be part of you, to be part and become one more Mississippian. I'm blessed that I'm in Mississippi because Mississippi has been giving me a family, has been giving me friends. And I think Mississippi is one of the states that welcome everyone. Most recent census data estimates the Hispanic population is the fastest growing population in the state and currently makes up about 3.6 percent of all Mississippians. I've been here close to 18 years and I've been seeing how the population is growing, how the support for the 
people, the U.S. citizens, they help in the Hispanics, and they begin to work together. So I think little by little we're going to become a growing population in the state. Elmore is originally from Mexico, whose Independence Day marks the beginning of Hispanic Heritage Month. The observation continues until October 15th, recognizing the many Hispanic countries that also gained independence. Other countries like Ecuador, Colombia, Chile, Venezuela, they continue with their own independence from the European countries. So we become all together to celebrate the Heritage Month. While everyone at Latin Fest highlighted different parts of their culture to celebrate, the consensus was that Hispanic heritage is about hope and perseverance. Lacey Alexander, MPB News. Coming up, thousands, <clears throat> excuse me, coming up, thousands of Mississippians on a path to regain their voting rights are facing another setback. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. No matter if you use an app to start your car or still have a flip phone, Everyday Tech can decipher today's technology or tomorrow's solutions. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or the MPB public media app. Why listen to Right on Mississippi? Now you know, when I talk about my mama, I talk about my mama. I don't say my mother, mm-hmm. I say my mama. But if I get out here to fix my mouth and say this book represents me and my family, my ancestors, I better get it right. Right on Mississippi, a podcast. Download now at mpbonline.org from the Mississippi Book Festival and MPB. Start your work week with a morning of locally produced programs on MPB Think Radio. At 9, it's Deep South Dining, featuring conversations about Southern cuisine. Hear interviews with interesting Mississippians on Now You're Talking at 10. And at 11, there's information on leading a healthy life on Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. The Fifth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals has withdrawn an August ruling that found Mississippi's felony voting law unconstitutional. The law strips voting rights away from anyone convicted of a crime that falls under 22 qualifying felonies, such as murder, bribery, forgery, and receiving stolen property. The only way to regain voting rights with one of those convictions is by a pardon from the governor or special permission from the state legislature. Amon Susie is an attorney with the Southern Poverty Law Center. He's representing plaintiffs who've lost their voting rights. He tells our Will Stribling the appeal is a major setback for many would-be voters. We were disappointed that a, a rehearing was granted. We, you know, we believe the initial opinion was very thorough. We understand that our victory was a big victory. So disappointed that there's a rehearing, but you know we're ready to continue the fight to make sure every person in Mississippi is able to vote. How are y'all feeling about the environment going going into to this next hearing? Because the mm-hmm. um, Republican nominees dominate the court, and the two judges who it, it gave y'all victory last time around were appointed by Democrats. So it was just a very mm-hmm. different. Um, different environment that y'all are going into this time? Mm-hmm. For, for for us, you know, we obviously, we, we know it's going to be, be a fight, but one of the things I think that we're confident in is that 
the original opinion, but just lays out so so much foundation on on why it's an Eighth Amendment violation that um, I think it doesn't matter what uh, how you are uh, appointed onto the bench, that opinion shows that this uh, constitutional provision is punishment and it's cruel and unusual. Not only discussing about how we as a society have uh, gone away from this type of punishment, but going into how important it is to have the right to vote in our society and being stripped of that for something, you know, that you could be, you know, charged as, as an adult, I believe at age 13 at Mississippi, right? Get, losing your right to vote before you even get a chance to become eligible to vote uh, in our society is truly cruel and unusual. So we know it's going to be a, an uphill battle, but our victory that we're coming from, I think, lays the foundation to why uh, we could win again. Yeah. And then the hypothetical scenario where y'all y'all don't win again this time around, is this a, a fight that you that y'all are committed to continuing, even if that means, you know, appealing up to the U.S. Supreme Court? Yeah, I think I think that's 100 percent what what would happen. And then I think if you ask the other side, too, they would say the same. And that's and also that, you know, it's just interesting that that back to back, you know, the, these really, really important questions are just elements of you know, how people view what it means to, to be free in this country, then mm-hmm. you know, that the, these court cases are coming out of Mississippi, you know, with the, the Dobbs uh, case regarding mm-hmm. bodily autonomy. And now this one about, you know, being able to, you know, just engage in the democratic process after you've paid your debt to society after 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 being convicted of, of one of these felonies. Like, just wonder, and it's, and it's okay. I know that you as an attorney for the SBLC, you might not want to speak to this, but I was just if you would like to, to speak on just how just the uh, significance and the interest of these really, really fundamental questions about about freedom keep coming, you know, out of out of uh, the South and specifically Mississippi here in these two cases. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, I'm 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 from the voting rights context, so I, I I wouldn't be able to speak to Dobbs specifically. But one of the things that I, I think part of our work here at Southern Poverty Law Center is not only making sure that the past effects of racism are no longer there, but to make sure to uplift the people who are are in the South to make sure that you know all their civil rights and all their rights are are enforceable and enacted. And that, as I said, goes back to uh, erasing the past. Uh, effects of, of, of racism that are still here today. So, um, you know, you look at Section 241 all the way back from the 1800s that still has, you know, stopped so many people today, after, like you said, after they've served their time and trying to come back into the society, they still don't have this key fundamental right, which is the right that allows us to get to, you know, every other right to have your voice. So, you know, some people may disagree and want to keep the status quo, but we have people here who are ready to put their name on the, you know, on court papers to say, no, this is not okay. And even though it's been here for 200 years, we're going to stop it. And we're going to actually make sure that we live up to the promises that that are in our constitution and equal protection under law means equal for everyone. And what do you make of it that the state is, is fighting so hard to keep this law in the books when, you know, we're, only one of, of three states that, that still have laws like this on the books. Definitely disappointing. You know, you could talk about the resource question, too, about, you know, why are we spending resources on something that should be nonpartisan and, and is the right thing to do. We, 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 we grow up learning how important it is the right to vote. And 
once people have completed their sentence, we, we say come back to society, but then all of a sudden you're saying, no, you don't have this, the most important right that allows all the other rights to be enforceable. And what I love about the, the original Fifth Circuit opinion is it talks about how important the right to vote is, and it goes to this historical perspective of what the right to vote means. And, um, you know, I'm disappointed that we're, we're going to have to continue this battle. But, you know, we understand that those who came before us had to fight even harder just to get this basic right to vote for, for everyone. Right. So disappointed. But we know that to get true equality and true equity, we're going to have to continue this, this battle, which goes back to why I'm so proud to of our named plaintiffs and, and the other people who, who put their names on the line to fight for justice. Aman Suzy is an attorney with the Southern Poverty Law Center. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.